Good morning, St. Paul's. I'm so glad that we're able to gather together by the wonders of technology and the power of the Holy Spirit, especially if it's your first time, if you're new and spiritually searching, you're in the right place. C.S. Lewis, the great English academic and writer, said this. If you're looking for religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. We're in week two of our summer preaching series, Summer Stories, where we're looking at the parables of Jesus, those uh, fantastically quirky, unsettling, and often super memorable stories that Jesus told during his three years in the public eye. And last week, uh, Tyler started us off by looking at what's probably the most famous, uh, the one about the welcome home party more commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. And it was a great way to start the series with one of the most heartwarming stories. Who doesn't want to have a party thrown for them? Who doesn't want to hear about God's unrelenting love and forgiveness? This is Jesus and the Christian faith at his most appealing, most encouraging. You know, that's the kind of story that you would point someone to who's curious or even critical about the Christian faith. No, no, no. Read, read this story. This is the kind of God that we follow. This is the kind of church that we are. Loving, inclusive. And in light of the horrors of the residential schools that we need to continue to confront, it was a good parable to begin the summer with. Especially since this morning, we came back down to earth with a thud. Because we just heard a most uncomfortable passage of scripture being read by Jayush. The one about the awkward wedding. The parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids. What are we to make of it? How can it shape our, our daily lives? You know, lives where salaries need to still be earned, children raised, uh, chemo endured. How could this story of an awkward wedding shape our lives in some hopeful ways uh, this summer? Well, have you ever noticed that when you're waiting for something important, your brain has a way of just uh, phasing everything else out? If you're waiting, say, for a certain car to pull into the driveway, maybe it's midnight and you're a 17-year-old with their newly minted driving license uh, is not yet home. And while you're waiting, you're not going to pay much attention uh, to the sound of the clanging heating pipes in the basement or, or the raccoons in your neighbor's garbage. Your brain is tuned to one frequency and one frequency alone. Namely, the hum of her Kia uh, Rio swooshing into the driveway. Waiting's hard. What are you waiting for? Condo prices to come down? Your brother to call you? Maybe that elusive patio reservation or your second vaccination? And while all of us are waiting for something, I'll make an educated guess that few of us this summer are straining our ears for the first whisper of the second coming of Jesus. And yet, as our freedoms begin to blossom again and we begin making plans and dreaming once more, Jesus in this parable draws our eyes above the summer horizon 
to that incredible day when we've been promised by God that Jesus will actually return to the earth. Now, if any of you have been counting, uh, Christians been waiting, uh, you know, Christians have been waiting for the second coming for a really long time, almost 2,000 years. And Jesus has been coming back for so long that plenty of people have given up. Um, and before he died, Jesus told his followers that he would be coming back at the end of time to take his followers into eternity with him. And because of that, none of his first disciples, those earliest ones, none of them made any long-range plans. Then a decade passed, then another, then another. And the people who'd actually known Jesus in the flesh began to die off. And the only reason we have the historical record of the Gospels at all is because finally someone worked up the nerve to say, you know what? There aren't that many eyewitnesses left. Uh, he hasn't returned yet. We really should get this stuff written down on paper. So how do we keep waiting? Painfully aware that God is not concerned with my calendar. God isn't even concerned with our linear concept of time. How do we wait for whatever the future holds in life-giving and hopeful ways? Well, the parable in Matthew today of the awkward wedding, it gives us a picture of two different ways to wait. And as I already said, it's an uncomfortable passage. People being excluded, a doors closing for good. This wedding is awkward. Now, Jesus could have told a story about friends who were going to a concert, you know, at the Scotiabank Arena together. Doesn't that sound great? Um, but some of the friends had a little bit too much to drink before dinner, and so while they're waiting in line to get into the sold-out concert, they, you know, slip into the washroom. But while they were gone, uh, the doors opened, and the rest of the friends who paced themselves through dinner went right on in and took their seats. And when the others arrived back late uh, from the bathroom, they found themselves locked out. But Jesus didn't tell that story because it wouldn't have made any sense to his original audience. So he told a story about a wedding. And Jewish weddings 2,000 years ago were not only full of fun and wine and dancing, they were also protracted affairs. The couple would not go away on a honeymoon, no, you know, trips to Quebec City or the Maldives for them, but rather they would stay at home and welcome visitors. There was no set time when the bridegroom would come to the house of the bride to eat the wedding feast. The bridesmaids waited to escort the bridegroom into the house of the bride once he arrived, and the door would shut with no possibility of late access. And to those who first heard this story, it would have been a stark warning not to miss Jesus the bridegroom of the story, when he did actually come back. But does this passage mean the same thing for us? 2,000 years later, when the promise of the second coming, I mean, it's lost much of its vitality, much of its edge. How can this story of an awkward wedding and, and painful exclusion, how could that be life-giving or hopeful? 
Well, this is still fundamentally a story about choices. Choices that human beings then and now uh, need to make every day. And last week, we got to witness uh, that life-giving choice that seven people made to be baptized in the middle of a pandemic. And we have a choice. As people who live in the in-between times, in between the first coming of Jesus, you know, which we celebrate at Christmas, and his eventual return. We have a choice as people in this in-between summer. How will we wait for the future? Will we be prepared or will we be caught in the bathroom lineup? Now, the bridesmaids who were prepared, there was five of them, right, when the bridegroom finally returned, they were initially in the same boat as the foolish bridesmaids. Remember, all the bridesmaids fell asleep. It's hard to wait. And they all had their lamps. On the outside, the bridesmaids pretty much looked the same. But the foolish bridesmaids had not brought any extra oil with themselves. In fact, a careful reading of the original Greek text will show you that the foolish bridesmaids hadn't brought any oil with them in the first place. The wicks of the ten bridesmaids must have been damp with oil from a previous night, and it burned out in just a few seconds, which explains why their lamps all burnt out at the same time. The foolish bridesmaids, they'd given up on the bridegroom. When they realized they needed more oil, they dashed off to the corner store, but it was simply too late. And it's worth pointing out here that much of our understanding of the story hinges on how we interpret the meaning of the oil. What, what does the oil represent? If Jesus is the bridegroom, what's the oil? Different theories put forth by different scholars, but my money is on the oil representing the Holy Spirit, the, the living presence of God, the, the presence of Jesus. Both the Old and the New Testaments connect anointing with oil with the Spirit of God descending on people. And if the oil does represent the Spirit of Jesus, then it helps to make sense of one of the most uh, difficult, uh, kind of troubling parts of the parable, uh, the apparent selfishness of the five smart bridesmaids. And, you know, in a kind of seemingly moralistic and rather a smug superiority, uh, they won't share their oil with their fellow bridesmaids. Sorry, you made your bed, you lie in it. That's a kind of troubling line. But it makes sense because a relationship with God in Jesus Christ, which the Holy Spirit secures, it's something you need to choose and claim for yourself. That's what's happening when an adult is baptized or a person who was baptized as an infant decides to be confirmed, an outward representation of an individual's personal decision to learn how to follow Jesus. You see, God has no grandchildren. Each generation afresh needs to seek after meaning and purpose for, for truth and hope. And in each generation, 
there will be those who find that uh, meaning and hope and truth in Jesus Christ. In each generation, people need to wrestle afresh with the reality of human brokenness and, and like my sinfulness. It is an irrefutable fact. And because of it, I then need to ask, well, how am I going to live my life? Where am I going to go for hope and healing? Where can I find a fresh start? Every day I need to ask myself that question. Every single day. And in each generation, we also need to come face to face with the sin-stained past and present of the church. That group of individuals, young and old, rich and poor, from Malaysia to Mississauga, that's what the church is. People just gathered around that carpenter from Nazareth. And each generation, we must call the church, people like me, people like some of you, we must call the church to repentance and new life. God has no grandchildren. And the church needs to be built afresh and renewed each generation. This parable, it is a cold water in the face reminder that while all the bridesmaids on the surface, you know, they were doing the same thing, right? Keeping watch, sleeping, they had their lamps. But only five of the bridesmaids had oil in their lamps. Only five had reached out for God, the Holy Spirit. Only five had responded to God's gracious invitation in Jesus Christ. And it's a response that's open to everyone. God may have no grandchildren, but I have to tell you, God is a shameless lover with shockingly low standards. Like God will let anybody in. God will throw a welcome home party for anyone. We all have choices. A choice to respond to God's love and mercy extended to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We can make a choice to put oil in our lamps now, or we can make a choice to be busy by all means, but to not have personally responded to the coming bridegroom. Since I, Jenny Anderson, have no more or less time than Drake has or Mother Teresa did, how can my choices be hopeful and life-giving as I wait in the concert hall lineup? Well, Thomas Long is a professor at Princeton and he puts it like this. This is Thomas Long. If there is no God-shaped future at hand, if nothing, nothing really is about to happen, then there's only one more day to be endured in an endless string of days, a bottomless pit of human need and a ceaseless line of the poor who are always with us. All there is left for the church to be is another well-meaning institution, and all there is left for the church to do is to whistle its services in the dark, collect its weekly donations, and keep the photocopiers humming, because nothing is about to happen. Who cares? But <laughs> if we think something is about to happen, that there is a God-shaped future, 
waiting, knowing that Jesus could return at any moment. Then, then we dare to reach out to those in great need and freely pour out our resources to the poor. We're willing to make sacrifices of time, comfort, money. And if we really believe that God has got the end game, what do we have to lose? Nothing. Let's sacrifice together. And if we trust the God of the Pleiades and Orion, the God of Pfizer and Moderna, if we trust that God will care for us, both now and for eternity, then we become people of great confidence in the future and humble service now. This great confidence and humble service, it can shape us as we navigate, you know, conflicts that we might have in our friendships or uh, in a marriage. We'll be much more willing to forgive knowing that we've been forgiven much by the bridegroom. The wise bridesmaids fell asleep just like the foolish. Everyone needs to be forgiven. And we will have a huge sense of urgency about healing broken relationships because there's no time to lose. The bridegroom could come in the middle of the night and welcome us into the great feast. We're motivated to engage as Christians in the political and economic sphere of our city right here in Toronto with great purposefulness because we know how the story ends and we want to work for peace and justice now as the oil from our lamp overflows. This eternal perspective is a marvelous way to have our daily lives shaped with hope and purpose. As we prepare to reopen our building uh, here at St. Paul's for worship in August, as we prepare to rebuild our in-person uh, life together as a community, let's wait expectantly uh, with confidence and with humility because something is about to happen. A God-shaped future is waiting to be born in my life and in yours. Let's put oil in our lamps. And during the creed and in a moment in the prayer of confession, I'd invite you to use that moment, those moments, to ask God, maybe for the first time, ask God the Holy Spirit to lead you forward and us forward as a community. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Amen.